We are back in our series on the five solas, or the solas of the Reformation, those five pillars that we stand on in our faith. Join us for Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, coming up next. And again, hi there, and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. We're continuing our series on the five solas, those five pillars of the faith that we ferreted out during the Reformation. Sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, sola scriptura. Today, sola fide, what faith alone really means. And then stick around at the end of the program. We've got information about our women's conference that we'll tell you all about. Right now, here's Pastor Steve Converse with today's program. Uh, We're in a series on the five solas of the faith of the Reformation and uh, discussed these the last uh, three weeks. And today is the uh, fourth uh, sola that we're going to look at, sola fide, which means by faith alone, faith alone. And... uh, I want to open up by reading a portion of scripture out of Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, and I just want to begin in verse 21, and I know that we've studied this as we've gone through Romans, and we have one more week uh, next week by the glory of God alone, for the glory of God alone, and then we'll get back into our study of Romans chapter 11. But today, follow along as I read a passage from scripture out of Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? He is not. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we will uphold the law. So we've been going through a study of these five solas. We looked the first week at sola scriptura, which means basically the Bible alone. We don't add anything to it. We don't take anything away. We don't 
add the traditions of our church and say, well, this is the way we do it here at Grace Bible Church or whatever. Uh, I know the Bible doesn't tell us to do that, but we just hold on to this tradition. Uh, no, we believe that we, we gain truth from God's word and God's word alone. And that's very critical to understand that first solo today. It's kind of the foundation upon, I believe, which everything else is built. Somebody asked me last week in an interview, well, are you teaching these in a certain order? And I said, well, there's so much debate on, on what order to teach the five solas. No, I'm not. But I started with sola scriptura because of the simple fact that, you know what, if we don't have the Bible, we don't have anything, right? I mean, we don't have the truth that God has given to us. And so it's very important that we have a high view of Scripture. So we want to read it. We want to understand it. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we teach the Word of God on Sundays and on Tuesdays and with men and ladies and children. Because we believe in Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. And then we look also at Solus Christus, Christ alone. And we saw the importance of he is the only means of our salvation. There's salvation found in no other name under heaven given among men. It's only in Christ that we are secured and forgiven of our sins. Because of his death on Calvary. And our trust in that death. That he paid for our sins. Past, present, future. He's freed us from the power of sin. And one day, ultimately, glory to God, we'll be freed from the presence of sin. Can't wait. Well, last week we looked at the third one, sola gratia, which means basically grace alone. Grace alone. And we talked a little bit about how it's not by works, which we've done. We don't earn our salvation we don't deserve our salvation if if grace is anything other than a free gift something that god bestows upon us it's not grace you don't have to get cleaned up praise the lord he saves us in our sin the bible says while we were dead in trespasses and sin he cleansed us he forgave us our sin and sometimes as Christians, we lose sight of that. And we begin to think maybe a little higher than what we should about ourselves. When we see what's going on in the world and we look down our spiritual noses at those who don't know Christ. And we oh, shame on them. How dare they act that way? They're not doing anything different than what we would do, beloved, if we didn't have Christ. And it's so important to understand that because it gives you compassion for them rather than judgment. And so we need to pray. For this lost world, we need to pray for our lost neighbors, our lost family members. And we need to be patient with God as he works through us in their hearts. And hopefully we're giving them a picture of Christ that is appealing to them. Not a picture that would be kind of a turnoff. So we need to be representing Christ. We need to be representing grace. And today we want to look at sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. I saved faith alone for fourth because I think it's kind of the logical climax of where we're going. This is all for the glory of God. We're going to look at that next week. But when I said sola scriptura is the kind of the, the principle behind the Reformation, sola fide is really the, or the material principle. Sola fide is the formal principle. It's the fact that faith alone brings us to the dispute that caused this reformation in the first place. 
The idea between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. The Protestants were protesting what the Catholic Church was teaching. That somehow you could earn your salvation. You could earn favor with God by giving money and by crawling on your knees and doing all sorts of things to your body. Somehow they thought that that earned them God's grace. That's why the Catholic Church has sacraments. Because those sacraments are a means to God's grace. As a Protestant church, we don't have sacraments. We have ordinances. We have two. Baptism, right? And so it's, it's important that we understand when we go through the ordinance of baptism and we practice the other ordinance, which is communion, the Lord's table. These, these aren't means to God's grace. These are just an expression of the grace that God has already bestowed upon our hearts. When you desire to get baptized, you don't get the teaching of the Bible. It's not that, okay, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. If that were the case, the thief on the cross would have a problem. Last time I checked, he wasn't baptized. And yet the Lord said, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he repented of his sin and he trusted in Christ and Christ alone. And so we don't look to baptism or we don't look to communion as a means of God's grace. But we look to those things as a celebration of our faith. We say that, you know what, we want to follow the Lord through the waters of baptism for the sole purpose of, you know what, that's what he commanded us to do. And it's an expression of our faith in Christ that when you go into these waters and you're laid back in the water, it's a picture of being buried with Christ in his death and then being gloriously raised to newness of life. That doesn't save you. That's just a picture of what happened to you. And the same thing on Communion Sundays, when we have communion, this bread and and this grape juice that we drink, it doesn't magically turn into the, the body and the blood of Christ. We don't do hocus pocus here. It's not that kind of a thing. It's just an emblem. It's a symbol of what Christ's death means to us. And so when we come to faith alone, that's really the key point of disagreement that they had between the Protestants and the early Roman Catholic Church. Luther called it the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Sola fide. It's also the doctrine by which we stand or fall. I don't believe that as a believer you can say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't believe it's just faith alone. I think that you would have to examine your faith. John Blanchard said this. He says, grace is not a reward for faith. Faith is the result of grace. See, we don't have our faith in and of ourselves. Our faith is a gift from God and it comes through his grace. B.B. Warfield said justification is through faith, not on account of faith. A.W. Pink said saving faith is not a native product of the human heart, but it is a spiritual grace communicated from on high. In other words, we don't just kind of conjure up some kind of faith. B.B. Warfield also said, it is not faith that saves, but faith in Jesus Christ. It is not strictly speaking even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively, not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of our faith. Powerful. J.I. Packer says, a church that lapses from justification by faith can scarcely be called Christian at all. Those are powerful quotes. When you look back a couple pages in Romans to Romans chapter 1 verse 17, it says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation in everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Then he says, Paul says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Look at what it says, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It means that the whole Christian life, beloved, is a life of faith. From the time you enter into the relationship with Jesus Christ and every step along the way, it's a step, it's a life of faith, step by step. When Martin Luther had an experience that was rather cage rattling, he almost struck by lightning, thought, wow, he's going to die, and cried out to a saint to save him. And through that whole process, he came to know Christ eventually. And while he was teaching through Romans, he finally, he came to this verse and he realized that what he was seeking, righteousness, and that's what he was seeking through the Catholic Church, through all the things that they had him doing, committed himself, he was a, a monk, he was a priest, and all these things. It could never come from an outward act or an inward discipline of the soul. He realized that, you know what, I'm seeking something that I, I can't even obtain in and of myself. And so he cried out to God that God would supply him that faith. And that's upon which our salvation is founded. Faith in faith alone. As a matter of fact, when he was translating Romans, he created quite a controversy as he was going through that. Because in Romans 3.28, he actually added the word alone in faith alone. Where it says, for one is justified by faith apart from works. He said, is justified by faith alone apart from works. And the Catholic Church came unglued. They said, that's not there. In the original. How dare you put that in there? But he replied that it's necessary so that we can understand the sense of the passage. And so Romans 3.28 indeed does teach by faith alone, sola fide. But when we talk about faith, I was doing some studying this past week. And I noticed that John MacArthur had a couple lists that I want to share with you this morning. These aren't in your notes. They'll be up on the screen. And the first one is things that... Neither prove nor disprove our faith. Because we're always concerned about our faith. Or the faith of someone else. And sometimes we look at certain things as indicators. Oh, that person's got great faith. So he gives a list. First of all, we want to look at things that neither prove nor disprove true faith. First of all, visible morality. (laughs) Visible morality. I mean, do you understand that you can be visibly, outwardly moral? And still not be saved? Still not be transformed by the grace of God? I mean, there's a lot of pagans, there's a lot of cultists that put Christians to shame with the life that they live, as far as morality goes. Remember when, in Matthew 19, when this young man came to Jesus, and he asked Jesus, he said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What was he asking? How do I get to heaven? That's what he was asking. That's the question everybody has today. Well, Jesus told him in that text, you can look it up, to keep the commandments and then proceeded to list some of the major ones. And the man responded with this. Well, I've done all that. (laughs) I've kept all that. Hey, give me something new, Jesus. Come on. Jesus did not challenge this man's sincerity. He didn't say, yeah, you're a liar. He didn't say any of that. But he did respond to him according to the outward appearance of this man his own human perception of his obedience he was probably speaking the truth he probably did seem in his own mind to keep 
these things that Jesus listed off. But when Jesus told him to sell all his possessions and give possessions and give the proceeds to the poor, then you can come and follow me. The Bible says that the man went away, what? Grieved, sad, for he was one who owned much property. See, when you stop and you think about that, his refusal to obey Christ was a demonstration that his outward obedience to the law was not done out of love for God. It wasn't done for the purpose of God's glory. But really, it was done out of self-love. He wanted people to look at him good. So he thought, well, I'm going to keep all my moral ducks in a row. So people can look at me and say, what a wonderful man that is. It was for the purpose of his own self-interest, you might say. And when he was commanded to give everything that he owned, and then he could follow Christ, he refused. He refused. And by that refusal, even his good works, beloved, exposed the spiritual worthlessness of his life. See, just because you come here on a Sunday morning, just because you do your devotions every week, just because you go through your little checklist of spiritual activities that you have in your life, that doesn't make you a believer. Now, that may be evidence that you are a believer. All those things are good things. But if you're doing them out of selfish motivation, God in the Bible says, you know what? They're just like worthless rags. Secondly, we see here not only visible morality, but he goes on, he says, intellectual knowledge of God's truth is not necessarily a proof of saving faith. What do I mean by that? It's possible, beloved, for someone to have a great deal of knowledge about God's word and yet be unsaved. I went to college with several people who just had an uncanny knack for memorizing books of the Bible. And they could, you know, you could ask them about a theological question and they just right off the tip of their tongue, man, oh, you got to go here. And then you, you do a little research and you find out where they at today. And they're not living for God. But they had all that knowledge. Intellectual knowledge of God's truth is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it's not necessarily proof of saving faith. Remember, the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day took a lot of time studying Scripture. But they didn't believe and obey the truths that they were studying. And what happened? Those, those truths that they studied actually became a judgment against them in the long run. Paul, to his self-confident brothers in the flesh, he says, You bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. But through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So you have these religious people that were claiming to know God, and yet they're not obeying. They knew about it, but they didn't obey it. Thirdly, He says, religious involvement is not necessarily a proof of saving faith. Look throughout the Old Testament with Israel, and you can see that, you know what? God continually condemned the Israelites toward all their observance of the Mosaic ordinances, all the ceremonies that they kept, and yet they had no trust in God. (laughs) They went through all this religious activity, but it was all for naught. Fourthly, You can even say this, active ministry in Christ's name is no certain proof of saving faith. You have religious involvement, but you also have people that are involved in ministry. Active ministry in Christ's name is not proof that you're saved. There's no 
proof there of saving faith. Think about it. One of the disciples that was very much involved in ministry, very active with Jesus, was who? Judas. He served as a trusted treasurer. He was the one that held the money. (laughs) He considered himself a follower of Christ. But in Matthew 7, Jesus said this, and this is a haunting passage for all of us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Act of ministry is not a proof certain proof of saving faith fifthly he says even conviction of sin does not necessarily demonstrate saving faith i mean there's a lot of people that are burdened by their knowledge of the sinful behavior in their lives and a lot of time that sense of guilt becomes so overpowering that they literally become insane he goes on he says six assurance of salvation is not an infallible mark of saving faith. I thought this was kind of interesting. John MacArthur writes, he says, the world is filled with people who are sincerely convinced in their own minds that they are right with God and that their place in heaven is secured. If being persuaded that we are Christians makes us Christians indeed, we would heed no warnings about being deceived by false hopes. If it were not possible to believe oneself saved when he is not, Satan would have No way to deceive people about their salvation. And yet scripture is full of warnings to unsaved people who think they are saved. And then seventhly, he says, experience of a past decision for Christ doesn't necessarily prove that your faith is genuine. If you're holding on to something that happened 20 years ago, my question for you is, what has Jesus done for you lately? You know, big deal. You walk down an aisle, you raised a hand. But if there's no transformation in your life since that point, we got a problem. We need to talk. So all seven of those things are not necessarily proofs. They can be, but they're not necessarily proofs of genuine faith. Well, what are some reliable proofs of of saving faith? He gives another list. He says, first of all, evidence of saving faith is a love for God. A love for God. Romans chapter 8, it says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. I mean, do you understand the unsaved person cannot love God and has no desire to love him? Can't. Secondly, he says, an evidence of saving faith is repentance from sin, a turning away from sin, a change of mind about your sin, and a hatred of it that always accompanies true contrition. It's basically the opposite of the first one there. A person who genuinely loves God will have a built-in hatred of sin. The Bible says it's impossible to love two things that are contrary to one another. Right? Matthew 6, no one can serve two, Matthew, or two, two masters, Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll hold on to one and despise the other. When you say that you love the holy and righteous God, you have to have a, a deep hatred of sin. And true repentance, beloved, is always more than just simply saying you're sorry for something. I mean, think about it. Judas became sorry for his sin. He was so sorry, he killed himself. But you know what? He didn't repent. He didn't ask for Jesus' forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul commanded the Corinthian believers, he commended them for being 
made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God. See, true repentance always involves godly sorrow. And this is Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. If you would like to hear the program again or find out more about us, you're welcome to visit our website, gracebibleonline.org. That's gracebibleonline.org. Or give us a call, 650-366-9923. If you'd like to join us for worship at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, Again, visit our website for the details, gracebibleonline.org, or call 650-366-9923. And now, once again, here's Pastor Steve. Thanks, Andy. I have a special announcement for the ladies in our listening audience. We will be hosting a women's expository conference with special speaker Colleen McFadden from the Simeon Trust on Friday and Saturday, May 5th and 6th. This conference will be beneficial for women who teach Bible studies, Sunday school, or just enjoy studying God's Word. Colleen is a very gifted teacher who will be sharing with our ladies the importance of expository principles in both Bible study and teaching. Breakfast and lunch will be provided, and there is a registration fee of just $60. The registration form can be downloaded from our website, gracebibleonline.org, and mailed in with your payment. Pre-registration is required and we're encouraging the ladies to register early because seating will be limited. Once again, we will be hosting a women's expository conference with special speaker Colleen McFadden from the Simeon Trust on Friday and Saturday, May 5th and 6th. You can check out our website for all the details and times and download the registration form today. Thank you, Steve. And again, friend, we'd love to hear from you. So call us today, 650-366-9923, or write to us, 2225 Euclid Avenue, Redwood City, 94061 is our zip code. Until next time, God bless. God bless.